You're now listening to the Nothing But Backboard Podcast with your host, Joey Jergo. What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Joey Jergo, your host. Nothing But Backboard, the name of this podcast. Number five. That is the episode that we are on today on this episode. We've got a lot to cover. Obviously, we've got to cover the Final Four and the national title games on both the men's and the women's side. And, of course, we're going to cover a lot of things in the NBA, including the buyout and the fallout. All that went down as far as what players want to what teams, what that's going to look like. Because, again, ladies and gentlemen, we're 20-some-odd games left until the playoffs start. So, of course, if you're following me on video... You know how the drill goes. You smash that like button, you share it, subscribe. You know the whole deal at this point. And if you're listening to this on audio, you can find me on most platforms for your podcast. So if you want to listen to this in your car, you just want to listen to it at your desk, wherever you are, please, please, please feel free to follow. Find those there. I appreciate you guys. You guys are amazing. Again, we got a lot to cover today. So, of course, you guys know my shout-outs. I like to throw some shine at people. Of course, Roz has always got me covered for the intro and the outro with the music here. So, I appreciate you, sir. Of course, if you guys haven't heard yet or have not seen the previous couple episodes, as I mentioned, we have a new logo. So, that's courtesy of my girl, Molly Camacho. Again, you can find her link in the description as well as Roz's music description. And all of his links are going to be down below. We got a lot of stuff to cover today, so let's get into it. So first things first, we're actually going to cover the college side of things because it's obviously the biggest time of the year when it comes to your regular generic fans. And and please do not take any offense if you're one of those people. But when we talk about basketball, a lot of people want to associate March Madness. Even the most casual fans who do not watch college basketball from November when the season starts all the way up to the end of February... When you hear the two words March Madness, of course people are going to be clamoring and wanting to fill out brackets. That might be the biggest cash cow that we have when it comes to sports. Arguably bigger than the NFL, maybe bigger than the NBA Finals, and I'm talking about the Super Bowl. Because again, you have a lot of people who do not follow college basketball who are clamoring to fill out brackets, who think they might have the perfect bracket, who think they can make a pool and make their bracket to win the national championship, and, of course, want some money with their people at work or whatever. That's not the point here. The point I want to make is, as I've mentioned in a previous episode before, we got the NCAA tournament. So I give a huge shout-out to the commissioners and everybody who had made all of this possible for both the men's and the women's. Obviously, there was no major hiccups as far as the COVID pandemic and anything going on with that. So we were able to get through all of these games, smooth sailing, Unless, of course, you're the teams that ended up losing in the round of 64 and you're a favorite for some people to make it to the Final Four and win a national championship. I'm not going to name any names. Texas. Not the point. But we've already covered that in a previous episode. So we're here to cover the Final Fours and the national championship games for both sides. We're going to start off on the men's side. As, of course, I'm recording this on Monday night, which means we have a new men's national championship team but we'll get to that part before we cover everything that happened on saturday in the final four with our two games between the number one overall seed gonzaga versus the ucl bruins some people are saying it's the best college basketball game that they've seen in recent years i can't argue that it was an amazing game 
watching two teams execute on the offensive end. But we're not going to talk about that one first. What we're going to talk about first is the first Final Four matchup that pitted the Houston Cougars, who's a two-seed out of their region, facing the number one seed, Baylor Bears. And a lot of people online wanted to throw some shade at this game, which I don't understand. Oh, it's a boring game. Obviously, this was a no-competitive game, as we saw in the second game. But when you look at what Baylor did, especially on both ends of the floor, holding Houston to under 40% from the field, and you're able to watch their activity on the defensive end, you see guys closing out on shoes. You see guys filling their assignments on defensive ends. When they switch, there are guys that are competing. They're not just allowing guys to come off the screen and be comfortable coming off the screen, especially when you talk about good ball handlers like Quentin Grimes, who's an amazing guard for Houston. You watch guys forcing guys off that pick and roll into traps or a hard hedge to where they're switching and having to redirect guards going away from their comfort and disrupting the flow of the Houston's offense, which again, I got to give a huge shout out to Kelvin Sampson, legendary coach, saw him at Houston, Kentucky, Oklahoma. I can go on about a couple other places that he coached at, but when you watch what Scott Drew did that particular game, and especially when you look at what Baylor threw at them, especially with multiple guards, and you saw it throughout the entire tournament. Obviously, we can look at the first-team All-American, Jared Butler, and watch his performance in the Final Four and the National Championship game. Obviously, we can look at that. But you talk about guys like Davion Mitchell. And I have to say this, guys. I have to admit it. He's got one of the dopest nicknames I have ever heard. And it makes sense. His nickname, if you guys haven't heard it yet in any broadcast or anything like that, the nickname that he was given was Off Night. What that means is, whoever his primary assignment was, was going to have an Off Night. And you saw that, especially throughout certain runs, throughout the tournament, as well as throughout the regular season. Davion Mitchell would be guarding their best players. And they would be struggling from the field. And you saw that a lot especially in this game when he was matched up against some of the guards from Houston. But of course, I talked about Butler, I've talked about Davion Mitchell, but I think one of the more unsung heroes of Baylor's run has been Maceo Teague. That dude can light it up from the perimeter. Absolutely insane what you've seen. Not only that, but again, I mentioned this in a previous podcast. I'm a huge fan of Matthew Meyer. Not only because of the mullet, but because of his game, what he's able to do on both ends of the floor Granted, he's not the greatest athlete, but you watch how that guy competes, how he's able to rotate, he's diving for loose balls. You kind of see the buy-in from Baylor throughout all that. Obviously, with Mark Vidal, and we'll talk about his name a little bit more in the national championship game, but you see a lot of those guys. Famamba, Chachua, those are fun names to say, by the way. You watch what those guys are able to do was absolutely outstanding. So if you want to look at a clinical example of what a team, how a team should execute on both ends of the floor, that was the game you wanted to watch, especially watching Baylor against a good Houston team, be able to dissect them, especially during, I think it was like the 14-minute mark of the first half. Baylor started making their run. They eventually pushed the lead to about 25 at halftime. They ended up winning by 19. But you can tell when Baylor is able to get stops on the defensive end, that translated to runouts. You see guys running the line, guys like Teague. Davion Mitchell plays at a different pace. I cannot wait to see him play at the next level if he decides 
to declare for the draft, this upcoming draft. If you're a team that is in dire need of a playmaker, but more importantly, a guy that will scrap on the defensive end and will take challenges of guarding some of the NBA's best players who all, for the most part, play on the perimeter, that's your guy. Davion Mitchell is primed to put things together at the professional level. So that's the first game. Now let's transition to the second game, and this is arguably everybody's favorite game of the tournament. As I mentioned before, up until maybe you look back at the Villanova-North Carolina game, we talk about the game winners and how insane those moments are. We have to talk about what happened the first 44-plus minutes of that game. You watched how UCLA play, and I think one of the biggest strategies about UCLA is that they're one of the lowest-ranked teams in the nation as far as pace. What that means is they slow the ball down, they work the shot clock, but I think the biggest important thing, and this was one of the things that kind of hurt Gonzaga, not only in this game against UCLA, but eventually in the national championship game that happened tonight against Baylor, you saw that UCLA was able to exploit matchups and mismatches on the offensive end for guys like Johnny Juseng, Hawkes Jr., even Tiger Campbell's able to make some plays for them. But even a guy like Cody Riley, who hit several mid-range jumpers, not his game necessarily. But again, as I talked about the first couple guys, especially Johnny Juseng, what a coming out party for that guy. He was a former Kentucky recruit, came back to SoCal and played for Nick Cronin. Johnny Juseng absolutely lit it up the entire tournament. And you saw that on display because when he was able to get some mismatches against a guy as great of a player as Drew Timmy is. Yeah, I said Timmy because the last episode I kept calling him Tim. Don't ask me why. I love the stash. But Drew Timmy, especially when they got switches, Johnny Juicing was able to make plays happen on the offensive end. And again, and I kind of talked about it because, again, I'm talking a lot about the UCLA side. But if you look at... What they shot in the first half, they shot about 57, 58% from the field. They finished the game shooting just under 58%. So that tells you, offensively, they were able to hang with the team that led the nation in scoring in Gonzaga. But let's let's go to the positive side about Gonzaga. Of course, we've talked about all tournament, how amazing Drew Timmy's been. But of course, they got their All-American and Corey Kispert. And who I think may be arguably, outside of maybe Cade Cunningham, the best player to come out of this draft if he decides to declare, and that's Jalen Suggs. Jalen Suggs, especially when you watch like the latter half of the second half and eventually into overtime, you're able to see what he's able to do on the defensive end. Obviously, we can talk about the big block that he had on Riley that eventually led out to a fast break, which he threw a dime from about three-quarters court to Timmy that put him up two in that period, but... When you look at Jalen Suggs, especially towards that latter half of the game, especially with a guy like Juicing who was getting it going, you saw Jalen Suggs step up, take on that assignment of guarding Juicing, and you saw him kind of disrupting the flow a little bit of UCLA where they weren't able to get to certain switches that they were getting in the first half and the second half of the game to where Juicing was able to exploit certain mismatches. Now, granted, Juicing still got some looks on Suggs, and I'm talking tough, professional-looking jump shots against Suggs at the mid-range. But Suggs was able to create some sort of hectic, frenetic kind of thing that disrupted UCLA's flow. But again, 
Why we keep talking about Jalen Suggs? He hit arguably one of the more memorable shots in recent history where if you look at the overtime, obviously the ball went in the hands of Juicing on the side of UCLA. Wait, let me let me go back to that. Because there was another big play, and I know a lot of people kind of talk about it at the end of regulation, where Juicing was able to get a drive. Drew Timmy stepped over, took a charge. That's a great call. I know some people are like, oh, well, it's this and that. But the reality is, especially with Drew Timmy, who had four fouls, mind you. He had four fouls going into that last possession defensively to step up, take that charge that eventually forced overtime for Gonzaga. That's a huge play. And again, you look at a guy like Drew Timmy, he's not an elite shot blocker. He's not a guy that can get above the rim and challenge guys that he may eventually have to face when you get to the professional, when you get to the league. But he made that play. Put the transition back at the end of overtime. Juicing followed his own miss, got the put back, ties the game at 90, and no timeout called. Jalen Suggs gets his one or two dribbles, three dribbles, gets across half court, pulls a three, game over. And of course, some people are going to talk about this not having as much significance, say, for example, as I mentioned to a previous game in more recent history, the Villanova-North Carolina national title game where Chris Jenkins hit a game-winning three after a ridiculously wild Marcus Page game-tying three. If you guys were able to go back to that game, again, those are probably two of the best college basketball games within the last six years for different reasons, obviously different styles of play. But again, that was a huge shot by Jalen Suggs that eventually led the Bulldogs to keep their undefeated season intact at the moment going into Monday. Speaking of Monday, tonight was the national title game. And oh my goodness. What a ridiculous start that Baylor had to start off the game. Going up 9-0 within the first couple minutes. Jalen Suggs picks up two early fouls within the first three minutes. And Gonzaga only had one basket after several minutes. And you would have thought, oh my gosh, this might be the game already. It was starting to look that way, but Gonzaga made some runs, gave you a little bit of hope. Gave you a little bit of life that, oh, this might be the season that it's destined to be. Because again, we talked about this before. It's been 45 years. 45 years since the last team went undefeated throughout the entire regular season. Went undefeated leading up to the national championship and eventually win it. That was the Indiana Hoosiers led by Bob Knight. Before that, you can talk about the Rand of Terror with UCLA, with John Wooden, Lou Alcindor, Bill Walton, all of those great players of UCLA. They made that happen. But to think that it's been 45 years, 45 years, since the last undefeated season has transpired, tells you how talented and how amazing teams were and still are and the balance of power when you look at some of the blue bloods over those last 45 years teams like duke teams like kentucky teams like kansas ucla even some of these one and done teams in recent memories like memphis with derrick rose and north carolina and all these other teams have not come close to an undefeated season. I think most recently it was the Kentucky Wildcats in 2016 with Carl Anthony Towns, where they made a run to the Final Four, undefeated, lost to Wisconsin. 
But you have to understand how ridiculously talented a lot of these teams are. But to transpire back, we're in 2021, of course. What Baylor did in that first half. Absolutely outstanding basketball. And of course, there's going to be the casuals. Please, again, don't take offense to this. Because I know you guys came here to listen to a basketball podcast. We're not here to cover the MLB. I know it's the opening week of baseball. Yay, I'm excited. Go Phillies. I know we've got a lot of other things going on. We've got the Masters coming up. Super excited about that. Of course, we've got WrestleMania coming up. we got all that, but that's not why we're here. We're here to talk about basketball. So when we talk about that, we have to understand, yeah, was it the most entertaining game? Was it as entertaining as the second game on Saturday in the Final Four? No, it wasn't. But when you watch what Baylor did, how they were able to disrupt Gonzaga on the defensive end, which led to easy baskets and runouts for guys like Butler, for guys like Davion Mitchell, for guys like Maceo Teague. And not only that, obviously the most outstanding player was awarded to Jared Butler. But the guy that made a lot of things happen for Baylor was Mark Vidal. Get this stat, peeps. I want you guys to understand this. In the national title game, Baylor had 16, 16 offensive rebounds. Mark Vidal was accounted for eight of them. Eight offensive rebounds. To put that in comparison, ladies and gentlemen, Gonzaga only had five as a team. Five offensive rebounds for one team. Mark Vidal for Baylor had eight offensive rebounds, which again, led out to those threes for Baylor, who finished, I believe, at about 10 of 23 from three. That's about 43.5%. That's a good stat. A lot of those led to, not based on one-on-one play, but it was offensive rebounds, turnovers, which again, it's a huge, vital, critical component of the game. If you want to win games, you have to take care of the basketball. Baylor made Gonzaga uncomfortable. I think someone made a great analogy of this. There's moving to a certain place, and then moving to a place with a sense of urgency. When you watch Gonzaga, they were able to disrupt shooters for Gonzaga on the defensive end. They're flying out to shooters, forcing them off the line. Gonzaga did not shoot well from the three-point line, but that was because Baylor was able to disrupt them on that end. And I know it wasn't the undefeated season that we were hoping for with the Cinderella ending being Gonzaga finishing 32-0. I will argue that Baylor should have also been undefeated. And the reason why I say this, the reason why I think Baylor could have finished the season undefeated was their two losses came from a three after a three-week absence from COVID protocols where they weren't able to touch a basketball. They weren't able to practice. They had to quarantine themselves for three weeks. And they lost two games, one of which was to Kansas and the other one was to Oklahoma State in overtime. But you kind of saw what Baylor was capable of doing throughout the first half of the regular season where they were able to lock teams up on the defensive end and shoot the ball well. Again, they were the nation leader in three-point percentage. You kind of saw what Baylor was able to do. And of course, when we talk about these two teams, these were your preseason number one and number two, number one being Gonzaga and number two being Baylor. And that was pretty much how it was throughout the entire regular season except for a couple weeks where Baylor fell to number three Michigan being number two 
But for the most part, these were the two teams everybody was hoping for would be in the national championship, and we got that. We got the two best teams in college basketball playing for the national championship. One team played with a sense of urgency, and it's not to knock Gonzaga and their amazing run that they had this entire year. But when you watch Baylor, and I, caught, I had this feeling that Baylor was going to create havoc, especially when I talked about Davion Mitchell off night. Baylor, Baylor's main calling card is working hard on the defensive end, getting quality looks on the offensive end, shooting a lot of threes, but quality threes. And you saw that blueprint happening tonight when it came to that game. I think if you're Gonzaga, a lot of people are going to criticize Gonzaga because there was a, a good stretch of the game. Gonzaga won zone. And they got killed in the zone with guys like T, guys like Vital, guys like Butler, flashing in the middle. If you guys know a zone, if you're able to move the zone, finding gaps is what's going to kill the zone. And the, arguably the biggest gap to fill on the offensive end against a 2-3 zone is going to be the middle because that's the center of the defense. And you saw what Baylor was able to do. Found guys in the middle. Mark Few said it in a post-game interview where they weren't able to get consecutive stops. Part of that was because if they want zone, Baylor found gaps. If they want man, and they ended up switching. As I talked about, again, Drew Timmy, a great player. A stellar offensive talent. But having to be switched out against guys like Butler, against guys like T, against guys like Davion Mitchell, that's not an ideal situation if you're a head coach, where you're big has to be forced, and granted, that was their scheme, where they switched, and you're being put against quicker athletic guards that can get to the cup, can also step out on the perimeter and hit threes. That was the main exposure that happened with Gonzaga. And so again, huge shout out, Baylor Bears, 2021 Men's National Champions, and again, a major, a major shout out, congratulations to Gonzaga on an amazing season. Again, only three other teams in college basketball history, most recent being the 1979 Indiana State team with Larry Legend himself, Larry Bird, being only the three other teams, only three teams, one of which is Gonzaga now, that went undefeated, made it to the national championship, and lost. That's nothing to hang your head about. Not many teams in college basketball Again, I've talked about all these Blue Bloods and amazing programs. Only three teams have done it. <laughs> That's an amazing thing to accomplish. And granted, people are going to criticize, well, they played West Coast Conference teams. They didn't have an amazing non-conference schedule. What do you want them to do? I asked that question. What would you like Gonzaga to do? If they could move conferences, sure they will. I'm sure that would be a great option, and that would help expose Gonzaga more to the national eye. But they've won games how they were supposed to. Non-conference games took care of business. Get to the tournament. Round of 64, 32, Sweet 16, Elite 8. They took care of business. Final four, they got a huge run from a hot team in UCLA. They still held them off. And then they had to play a buzzsaw known as the Baylor Bears. So again, thank you to both teams. And thank you, again, whoever was in charge of running the tournament and keeping everything and every player, staff member, coaches, refs, safe, sound. 
it's been two years. I was, <laughs> I want it again next year. That's all I want. I just want college basketball to be back to normal so we can get back to it. So, because of course, I want Duke to be there. It sucked not having Duke in the college, in the NCAA tournament. I want him back. That's all I ask. That's all I ask. All right. Is it too much to ask? I hope you guys are cool with it. Yeah. Think it happen. So, now that we covered the men's side, Let's hop over to the women's side. we got to give these ladies some love because, again, I know there's been a lot of news, controversy about the discrepancy between the, the locker rooms and the weight rooms, how it was just despairingly different. But, oh, my gosh, let me tell you this. Women's basketball, especially college basketball players, at that level, are ridiculous good. And I'm gonna I'm gonna call out some certain people, not by name, but you may know who you are. You may know people like this. There are people in the comments that are saying, "Oh, it's women's basketball. I could beat them." Well, here's the news. I've played against some women's college basketball players. Granted, they may not be D1. They probably play D2, D3 at the JUCO level, but they can still flat out play. And I'd argue they could beat you. So, if you're one of those people that want to tear down women's basketball, college, WNBA, whatever level you want to, continue to do that. Because the truth is, those are talented women that know how to play basketball. And at the end of the day, they're the ones that are on the court, on national television, playing. While you're sitting in the comment section, being a keyboard warrior, typing with your little fingers about how they're not good... When you're stuck on an adult league somewhere in a small town, not even the best player on your team. So, calling you guys out, I admit it, whatever, so what? Women's college basketball, women's professional basketball, players can play. That's all I gotta say. Enough about that rant. I had to. I'm sorry. I had to get it off my chest. It, it bothers me. Because especially watching the Final Four, especially in the first game when you talk about UConn, and of course when you people, when everyone talks about women's college basketball, that's the most synonymous program that people talk about when it comes to women's college basketball. UConn, obviously they produced some of the best players in women's basketball history. In my opinion, the GOAT, Diana Taurasi, Sue Bird, Brianna Stewart, we can even go back to Rebecca Lobo. All these other players, and of course they got they got themselves another great one in freshman guard Paige Beckers, Paige Buckets, if you will. But watching their game against Arizona and watching Ari McDonald and the Lady Wildcats, oh my goodness! Woo. Let me just say this: a team that plays that hard on the defensive end and makes a team like UConn, who again, speaking of another team who led the nation in scoring. Arizona did not let UConn get any sort of quality. They had to work to get some of the looks, actually majority of the looks that they got during their Final Four game. And it was amazing. And not only that, but when you watch Ari McDonald, lefty, she is a blur. There was one play, I believe it was in the second half. It was like late in the second half, and it was kind of clutch time. Arizona were when they were closing out the game and there was a ball pick Aaron McDonald comes off it so she's going to her right 
UConn thought, we're going to double her. We're going to hard hedge. We're going to double. Ari McDonald said, nope, splits it. Arguably one of the quickest splits I've seen. Gets there, throws up a floater, and one. Seals the game for Arizona. I have to say this, that when you watch what they were capable of doing, and I apologize, I was doing a lot of research. I'm trying to remember the the coach's name for Arizona, but she was a former player at Arizona, was on the Seattle Storm in 2004 when they won their first WNBA championship. She was an assistant at Washington before coming to Arizona, which, oh, by the way, Aaron McDonald was recruited by that coach. And just allow me, like, a couple seconds here. I'm going to remember her name because I I feel like I'm doing you guys a disjustice here, an, an injustice um, on her name. And she's a great coach. And for some odd reason, I don't remember her name. Adia Barnes. There it is. Okay. Now you got my blunder on YouTube. You got it on podcast. There you go. Adia Barnes. And you can kind of see, because I, I watched some of her film, because of course they, they broadcasted a lot. And I actually got, was able to watch some of the old tapes for her when she was at Arizona and also when she was playing for the Storm. That identity on the defensive end that she kind of helped cultivate for the Lady Wildcats, you saw that in the Final Four game against UConn. And again, I mentioned it. Watching watching UConn struggle that much to get quality looks, watching good players like Beckers and Williams, they, they didn't have a lot of rhythm to get on a run because Arizona was stumping them on the defensive end. And Ari McDonald was just lighting them up. So... It was amazing to watch that one. But the game prior to that, battle of number one seeds between South Carolina and Coach Terry Vanderveer and the Stanford Cardinals. Bias, I was rooting a little bit more for for Stanford, despite my, my love and support for the Gamecocks head coach, Don Staley. But Haley Jones... And I have this kind of personal story. It's not like I have this deep connection with Haley Jones. She doesn't even know who I am. But Haley Jones is a California girl. She played down in Santa Cruz at a school called Archbishop Mitty. They're a perennial powerhouse, or they were, especially when she was there. And I remember her sophomore year, it was a state title game, and they were playing Clovis West as a sophomore. Haley Jones was giving people the business as a sophomore. And granted, these were like... I think they were nationally ranked one and two, or they were within the top three or top five. And Haley Jones was still giving that team the business. They ended up losing the game, but watching her, I was like, she's going to be something when she plays at the collegiate level. And of course I was able to watch her when she was playing on the U 17 team USA women's or girls team that were just dominating. But Haley Jones had she not been there, Stanford loses that game against South Carolina. Because if you look at the rest of the team, their field goal percentage, especially in the Final Four and the National Championship game, they shot below 40% without Haley Jones' stats accounted for. And including that big bucket that they had, that she had at the end of the Final Four game. And I got to tell you, it was such a heartbreaking moment to watch when 
They inbound it. So this is Stanford. So if you guys didn't watch the game, I'm going to give you guys a bit of a recap of what happened the last seven, eight seconds of the game. So Stanford has their ball in their own front court. Haley Jones inbounds the ball to their guard. South Carolina traps her, forces a turnover, a live ball turnover. They get a run out. A girl has to throw up going away from her, like going away to her left, throws up a floater off the backboard, hits the front rim. Post player for South Carolina comes in, times it for a good tip back, and it, ugh, boop, boop, off the rim. Stanford escapes with a one-point win against South Carolina. And again, if you want to talk about good basketball, please watch that game. If you have time and if you're able to find it somewhere to watch the game, please watch that. It was some high-quality basketball. But that was another narrow win for Stanford. The reason why I say another narrow win, because when you go into the national title game on Sunday between them and the Arizona Cardinal, or blah, see, I, I did it again. So I apologize. I said the Arizona Cardinals. That's a football team. But, of course, Stanford, their logo or their mascot is the Cardinal. Arizona is a Wildcat. But because I like mixing Arizona and Wildcat, apparently I just like to say Arizona Cardinals for some random reason. But anyways, we get back to the point at hand here. So, another tight game. And the funny thing about it is, in the two previous matchups, because they're both Pac-12 teams, in the two previous matchups, the first game between Arizona and Stanford, and again, Arizona was ranked in the top 10 for a good portion of the regular season. But Arizona beat them by a good solid margin. I think it was about 30 or 40 plus. And then their second meeting prior to Sunday's matchup was by 14. But of course, when we talk about March, we talk about March Madness, we talk about the NCAA tournament, it's not necessarily who's the best team. It's who's playing the best basketball come in March. And, of course, Arizona riding high. They got Aaron McDonald and what they were able to do. But when you watch that game, again, when you look at what Haley Jones was able to do, Kenzie Williams, I believe, was a leading scorer for Stanford throughout the regular season. Outside of her round of 64, and I think it was her Sweet 16 game, Williams struggled from the field. Like, she struggled a lot. Like, she shot under 35% in all those other games. So it wasn't like she was lighting up the world. Thankfully, they had a girl named Haley Jones, especially in the national championship game. Again, Stanford made some key baskets coming down late. And I, I actually have a couple of people. I'm going to kind of throw them out here. Um, one of my boys, Tom Tran, He's an amazing coach. Let me just say this. For any parents or any kids in junior high or high school that want to play basketball for a coach or for a program in this area, whether it's boys or girls, Tom Tran's your person. He makes the game fun for people. But I remember I saw a tweet from him. And please, uh, Tom, if you're watching or listening to this, uh Sorry in advance, but you're welcome also in advance if I get at least like one or two kids coming to your program that want to play because of me. Whatever poll I have, you're welcome. Anyway, you're my guy. So, know this is coming from love. So, 
You watch the last possession for Arizona. Obviously, we know who the ball's going to try to end up being in the hands of. It's going to be in the hands of McDonald. But you kind of watch how Stanford kind of took away their first and second looks. And then the ball got to McDonald. And nothing really came out of it as far as getting her a quality look. So she ended up having to force a three over outstretched hands, clanked it, ball game. But I remember it was a tweet from Tom and, of course, one of my former players, uh, Connor Baroni. Um, also, shout out to you. Uh, I appreciate your relationship. I love you. So, again, if you're hearing this, fast forward to this part. You're welcome. But they kind of had this short conversation where it's like, how do you get, how do you end up with a shot like that? I'm paraphrasing, but why is that the look that you get at the end of the game to try to win a ball game, much less the national championship game? And I I really want to kind of stress this out to you guys, because obviously when you think of basketball and you think about some of the things that would make that gives your team the best chance to win a game in a, a situation like that. Obviously, you want to put the ball in the hands of your best player, but you also have to understand there's four other players on the floor. If it is too predictable, if it's too obvious, and the other team is taking away your first option, and even in that case, the second and the third option, who was still McDonald. So the first, second, third option was Ari McDonald. Third option, Ari McDonald. There has to be some sort of design that gets you an easier look. Because again, I know that we live in this day and age where we're very enamored by the three. I, for one, am a proponent and a guiltiest charge for being a person that loves shooting threes. That's not the point. But especially in a one-point game, you have to give yourself the best chance to win. If it were me... I would have drawn up a play to where obviously the ball's in the hands of McDonald, but you got to get somebody diving to the rim, whether it's a back cut, because obviously all the attention is going to be on her. So if you run somebody back door, and I trust McDonald as a playmaker, find that girl diving on a back door cut for a look. We might be talking about different tune here, where we're talking about the Arizona Lady Wildcats being the national champions. But of course, shout out to Haley Jones, Santa Cruz, California, will represent, even though I'm not from Santa Cruz, but of course, when we talk about somebody from near Northern California, anyone from California representing Stanford Cardinals, Coach Vanderveer, legend Hall of Famer, congratulations to the Lady Cardinals for their women's national championship. So, that's all I got to cover. We'll probably talk a little bit more about college basketball in future episodes in the near future because obviously we've got the NBA draft coming up in the next couple months. So we're going to be talking about certain players that are declaring for the draft, certain players that are returning for school. And then obviously we're going to talk about some of the top recruits in high school that have either already committed to programs or names to be looking out for as we go into 
the upcoming NBA draft and obviously recruitment day as we get ready for next season for the NCAA. But we're done talking about that. We're done talking about college basketball because most of you are probably here to talk about the NBA. And yes, we're about 22, 23 games left in the regular season. So just to give you guys a bit of a updated standings, and then we'll go into obviously my, my spiel about teams of the week, my players of the week. But I, I think this one kind of holds a little bit more weight because again, we're talking about playoff ramifications. As I talked about in the previous episode, in the previous episode, I reintroduced the play-in tournament between the seventh seed all the way down to the 10th seed. So seven, eight, nine, ten. Those seeds have a chance to still make the playoffs where the seven, eight seeds could potentially find themselves either one team hopping into seventh and one of those teams potentially not even making the playoffs because they can't win games. But as we look at the standings right now, if we look in the Eastern Conference, so right now your new number one seed in the Eastern Conference is the Brooklyn Nets. We're going to talk about them in a little bit. They're a half game up on the number two seed, the Philadelphia 76ers, who are only one win behind identical number of losses. Your number three seed is the Milwaukee Bucks, followed by the Atlanta Hawks at your four, who were tied with Miami as the number five seed, both at 26 and 24, eight and a half games back. So again, if you look at the Eastern Conference right now, Feasibly, there's only three realistic teams that have a shot at winning the one seed, and that's the Nets, Sixers, and the Bucks. Everyone else, they're going to be battling to get to at least the four seed, but worst case scenario, they hope to get to that six seed so they don't have to worry about playing in the playing tournament. As we go down at the six seed, we got the Charlotte Hornets, who right now, obviously they had the injury to LaMelo Ball not too long ago, but now they're out without their other all-star, Gordon Hayward, for four weeks. That might be a team you may see at this moment in time, as a six seed may fall into that that dreaded pit of that 7-10 slot that most teams want to avoid. Followed by the seven seed, Boston Celtics. Then you got the Knicks at number eight. They were hovering near that top half of the Eastern Conference playoffs. Now they find themselves sitting in that pit, as I mentioned before. Then followed by Indiana, Chicago, and Toronto. Now the reason why I threw in Toronto, now you probably counted Toronto is the 11th seed. Yes, but when you look at 6 through 8, they're separated by a game. If you look at 9 through 11, they're separated by 3 games. So again, this is 22, 23 games left for some of these teams. Toronto still has a chance because they're only one game back of the 10 seed, which is Chicago, to get into that playing tournament. Indiana, who's a game a half back of eight, could find themselves playing up. And of course, if they are two and a half games back of Charlotte, who's a six seed, if they're able to reel off wins, Indiana can find themselves at that six seed, which again, if you're any of these teams right now that I've mentioned, if you're Charlotte, Boston, New York, Indiana, Chicago, or Toronto, if you're any of those teams, your goal right now is to get to the six. So you don't have to worry about a play-in tournament. You don't have to worry about that coming up, playing an extra couple games, getting ready for the playoffs if you're able to make the playoffs. 
So that right now is your Eastern Conference standings. So again, when you look at it, again, it's, it's kind of a three-team race out east between Brooklyn, between Philadelphia, and between Milwaukee. But of course, there's still a lot to play for. And of course, you got Miami, who I'm going to talk about in a little bit. They may potentially be a player come playoff time. But out west, this is where things get interesting. When you look out west, the Utah Jazz still sit on top. I've said it in like the last two podcasts, and it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. Utah Jazz are still the number one team in basketball based on record. They're still sitting at number one. Followed by the Suns, still sitting at the second, two and a half games back. Then your three seed, the Los Angeles Clippers, not the Lakers, the Los Angeles Clippers at number three, followed by the Nuggets, who sit four ahead of the Los Angeles Lakers at number five. And I stress this because we're going to dive in a little bit more of some backstory with the Lakers going in a little bit. So the Lakers sitting at five. You got the Trailblazers sitting at six, followed by the Mavs, Grizzlies at eight, the Spurs sitting at nine. Golden State sitting at 10, and then I'm going to throw a couple teams in there, 11 and 12, the Pelicans and the Kings respectively, because when you look at the standings right now, so again, Dallas, nine and a half games behind first, but more importantly, they are sitting three games ahead of Memphis, and they're only two games back of Portland, two and a half games back of Los Angeles, for that more treasurable 5-6 seed. Because again, we kind of talked about it. So you obviously know the whole spiel. But if you look at 8 through 11. 8 through 12 actually. Between Memphis, San Antonio, Golden State, New Orleans, and Sacramento. They're only separated by 4 games. So if you kind of look at some of these teams now. So say for example, you look at the Sacramento Kings. They were on a winning streak. Now they're riding a four-game losing streak. Golden State and San Antonio are also riding a three-game losing streak. So if one of these teams decides to get on a winning streak, they could find themselves propelling themselves up towards a 7-8. Hopefully, we'll see if you're one of those teams. Hopefully, you can get a late run in. Or at the very least, you get to that 10 spot, be a part of that playing game, hopefully win two of those three games against the nine seed, whoever it ends up being, then you find yourself possibly getting that playing game against whoever ends up being the eight seed between that seven, eight matchup in the plan. So there is a lot, and I mean a lot, still to play for. Because, and I'm going to say this now, obviously the team that everybody is looking out for and the team that everybody's watching is the Los Angeles Lakers for obvious reasons. They've played this stretch without LeBron and Anthony Davis. This isn't the Los Angeles Lakers. That's at full strength. This isn't the Los Angeles Lakers, the defending champions. We're looking at a team that's just trying to hold on. They're trying to, they're trying to keep all of these all of these things Hopefully steady in place so by the time that LeBron and Anthony Davis comes back, they're able to kind of get back into form. And what their new acquisition, who we're going to talk about in just a bit, hopefully Los Angeles, if you're a Lakers fan and you're listening to this or you're watching this, you better hope you guys can hang on, stay on top at least at the sixth spot so you don't have to worry about falling in that playing tournament. And more importantly, you hope that your two-star players 
are fully healthy, be ready to make that playoff run. So, as I've talked about, talk about my teams of the week, talk about my players of the week. When I look out east, it's, it's a very difficult one to pick. Because when you look at some of the teams that have been playing right now, there's teams that have gone on winning streaks after just being on a consecutive game losing streak. And this team that I'm picking, granted, they were just on a six-game losing streak. But right now, they are riding a four-game winning streak. That is the Miami Heat. So again, Miami Heat was one of the big players in the trade deadline. They acquired Victor Oladipo, and they also picked up Trevor Ariza earlier on in the trade deadline. But Miami, again, the defending Eastern Conference champions. Again, they were just on a six-game losing streak prior to the four-game winning streak that they're on right now. But when you look at their four-game winning streak, including wins at New York by a score of 98-88, to at Indiana, 92-87, to against Golden State, 116-109, to and versus Cleveland, 115-101. to Now, granted, those are not teams outside of New York and Indiana that they really have to worry about as far as a playoff race. And the reason why I don't say Golden State is because they're not competing against Golden State right now in the Eastern Conference playoff race. But when you look at the pieces that they acquired in the trade deadline, and you watch how Miami played leading up to the postseason last year, it wasn't like they were playing their best basketball. But when you got to the playoffs, you saw Miami piece everything together and adding another piece in Victor Oladipo, along with guys that are hopefully staying healthy throughout the rest of the regular season. Jimmy Butler, Tyler Hero, Bam Adebayo, Duncan Robinson. Could Miami be a sleeper pick out east? Possibly. Now again, this comes down to injuries. This comes down to whether or not those those pieces, especially when you throw in a guy as talented as Oladipo, is he able to mesh with the rest of the roster. He fits the culture from a stylistic standpoint. But is he able to mesh in time to give Miami a solid run? Possibly repeating as these conference champions? I don't know. We, I don't know yet. But that's a team to look out for if you're out east. Yeah, Miami riding a four-game winning streak. Let's hope they don't go back to a another consecutive losing streak and then having to win another... You know, five games in a row because it just it just makes my my job a little more difficult to try to pick a team out east again when you have teams that are going on winning streaks and losing streaks and back on winning streaks. It just makes it that much more difficult, people. I'm just gonna say it right now. As much as I love watching and following basketball with all my heart, it's just difficult when you have teams that you try to decide who's the team of the week when they can't win games and then they just randomly start winning games. But that's just the nature of basketball, right? I digress. Out West, I was going to say Utah. They were riding a nine-game winning streak prior to tonight. They lost to Dallas. But outside of that, there's another team who's riding a lengthy winning streak, and that's a six-game winning streak, courtesy of the Phoenix Suns. So during their six-game winning streak, they beat Toronto and Tampa. I'm not going to say Toronto even though technically they are the Toronto Raptors. They're playing in Tampa. But they beat the Raptors in Tampa, 104-100, to followed with the win at Charlotte, 101-97, to 
then played Atlanta, beat them 117 to 110, beat Chicago 121 116, and then a drubbing of the Thunder 140 to 103, and at Houston another drubbing 133 to 130. And just to get you guys on the radar, just to give you guys a little bit of a heads up, they have a game this upcoming Wednesday. So that's April 7th against Utah on ESPN. So again, this may have some major ramifications because I know, yes, they're sitting two and a half games back. But, and I know Utah finds themselves on winning streaks even after some losing streaks. They've won nine out of their last ten. But the two and a half games back, sitting three games ahead of Los Angeles, the Clippers, of course, I'm talking about. Phoenix continues their run, including a, a big win against Utah. Now they find themselves within two games of first. Who knows? Time will tell. And I think that may have some ramifications as far as who the coach of the year is, because I probably preached his name a lot, Quinn Snyder, the head coach of the Utah Jazz. I feel like he's been robbed of the coach of the year over the last couple of years. And up to this point, he's almost been a shoe-in as my coach of the year. But if Phoenix continues to ride their winning streak, and especially with the momentum that they had from the bubble going 8-0, and how they've been playing, obviously getting a Hall of Fame caliber player in Chris Paul to play alongside young talent like Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, if Phoenix is able to somehow come away with the one seed, I think that may or may not play a factor in who ends up winning the coach of the year. I'd still say Quinn Snyder, but you still got to get love to Monty Williams. So that might be something that if, if you guys are curious about any sort of predictions that I may have as far as coach of the year, most improved player, sixth man of the year, MVP talks. That's one I'll, I'll, I'll kind of talk about right now. It's between those two coaches as far as who's my coach of the year is. I love Steve Nash. Obviously, he's a former Mavs great. Phoenix Suns great. But it's really between those two guys, Quinn Snyder and Monty Williams. Can't talk me off that hill. No offense. But talk about players of the week. Since we're on the topic of the Suns and we're talking about players of the week, Devin Booker, he put up stats. And, of course, during this winning streak, he's put up numbers. So he shot 52% from the field. 47% from the three, 93% from the free throw line, and he averaged over 32. That's a, that's a pretty hefty number. It's a pretty big number. But, of course, the big part is that his team's winning. Again, they're riding the six-game winning streak. And Devin Booker's playing his best basketball, and that's very important. Obviously, another guy that I want to throw a huge shout-out to. Oh, yeah, I'm going to say it. Luca. <laughs> The five games that he's played, his last five games, Mavs are also 5-0. And he's shot pretty well, 51% from the field and 44% from the three-point line, which is a big thing to talk about because, again, it was a major struggle of his at the beginning of the year. He shot abysmal from the three-point line. He shot under 20% from the three-point line, despite the fact he was still putting up big numbers. But that's a huge one. I'm not going to talk about his free throw percentage. In case anyone's wondering, it's, it's, um, it's under 58%. From the free throw line, it's not good. But that's not the point I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about that. But, again, Devin Booker, what he's been able to do, what he's been able to accomplish, especially during this winning streak where he's able to take over games, which we've seen before. We've seen Devin Booker do this before, so this is probably nothing new that you guys have heard. 
but of course that it's also equating to winning games, something that has not been a formula for the Suns over the last handful of years. It seems like a handful of years. He was only drafted like five or six years ago. But that it's equating to winning. And Phoenix is on the brink of potentially being the number one seed out West. Look at what Devin Booker's doing. There's a good reason to celebrate. But that's my Western Conference Player of the Week, Devin Booker. When we look out East, Kyrie Irving, Uncle Drew. In his five games, he's averaged over 27 his percentages are not as good as the two guys that I mentioned. But again, when you look at what has happened with Brooklyn, again, they've been going in and out with certain guys being in the lineup, out of the lineup. And we're talking about our star caliber players. Of course, we still are waiting for whenever Kevin Durant comes back. I'm hoping so. I'm a fantasy owner of Kevin Durant. If I can get Kevin Durant back soon, and I mean real soon, I have a chance of still making the winning side of the playoffs. I hope. I'm praying. But again, you have, he's been out of the lineup, of course. James Harden's been out of the lineup. They just acquired Blake Griffin and another name that I'm not going to mention yet because we're going to talk about him in a little bit because it's a funny little story and an illustration that just came to my mind. But Kyrie Irving, at times, you see how talented he is. And I've mentioned this in a previous episode or two or three. By the way, if you haven't listened or seen any of the previous episodes, the previous four episodes of the NBB podcast, you can find it on YouTube. You can also find it on most podcasts, including Red Circle, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Hopefully, eventually, it'll be on Apple. So if you're an Apple person, it might be on there too. But I've mentioned this in previous episodes. Brooklyn has not been fully healthy. Yes, they've acquired a lot of all-star talented players within the last handful of weeks, but it's not like the pieces have all been there, especially a guy as vital as Kevin Durant. So if Kyrie Irving, James Harden still able to keep the team afloat, again, they're sitting at the one seed. Not that that may have a significant ramification for them because obviously the long-term goal is to win a championship, but that could be just a slight little part of the adventure along the way. But Kyrie... Again, put up some good numbers, but more importantly, not that this matters to anyone. If you're a person of voodoo that wants to wish, you know, bad juju on someone, hasn't missed a free throw in the last five games. He's 12 of 12. It's not a big number, but something to be mindful of. So, and he's also averaged nine assisted games, so that's something to kind of also celebrate about Kyrie. But let me just say this again. We're going to hop into the topic right now. To give you guys a bit of a fallout of the buyout and what that means. So this is a post-trade deadline. So some of these players, when it comes to the trade deadline, I've mentioned this in the previous episode. When it comes to that, if an organization is not able to make a move to trade a player away and get assets, trades, players, cash considerations, you name it, they eventually agree to a buyout. Two names... Two pretty big names were the big rumored ones. Obviously, there was a bunch of other ones that were thrown in there as well. But the two big names that came out of the buyout market was Andre Drummond and the Marcus Aldridge. Now, the reason why I talk about those two, I have this visual. So I'm probably going to throw it up here on YouTube right now. But if you guys have ever watched Captain America Civil War, 
I'm not talking about the Avengers. I'm talking about Captain America Civil War. And you see that poster, Captain America, Iron Man, and the list of all the other superheroes, whether it's Hawkeye, Spider-Man, Black Panther, Scarlet Johansson as Black Widow. I almost said Scarlet Witch. Vision. All of them. She was also in there. But it's almost as if you're looking at the point where the Lakers and the Nets have this sort of Civil War thing going on where it's like, oh, we have that all-star right there. Come here. We'll sign you. Oh, you're also on the buyout. Come this way as well. And that's the vision I'm getting. And that's the thing that's kind of been tickling my brain for a little bit is the fact that you look at teams like Los Angeles and Brooklyn. Obviously, these teams have championship aspirations. You look at the talent. You look at the roster that they've assembled. Obviously, this is the end goal. And I'm just going to go on this tangent right now. A lot of people have been giving LeBron a lot of flack about, well, Jordan never got all these all-stars to create a super team and this and that. I get that. But you also have to think about certain variables. Now, whether this points the finger at me as me being a LeBron lover and I think LeBron's a goat or not Jordan and all this, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care who the goat is. Because some might argue... Certain guys in the past are the GOATs, whether it's Oscar Robinson, Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, whatever. Kareem, to also throw another name in there. I just appreciate greatness regardless of who the GOAT is. But you also have to think about this, and I'll get back to my original point. You have to think about this. Was the cap space what it is today, how it was back in the 80s and 90s? Absolutely not. Sure, you look at teams like Los Angeles Lakers and the Boston Celtics, so like the two most storied franchises. Obviously, the Lakers had Magic, Kareem, Worthy, Byron Scott, Coop, Rambis. Celtics had their big three, and Bird, Parrish, Kale. They got Bill Walton, Danny Ainge, Dennis Johnson. But you also have to think about, before all that happened, there was this thing that wasn't there, and that was called the draft lottery. So, when you think about that, and this kind of bleeds into the whole Jordan thing. And again, I'll get back to the topic. But you have to understand that teams that were able to buy their number one picks got the number one picks. So, Boston and LA. Oh, yeah. We'll throw out my number one picks. So, we'll get Bird. We get Magic. Oh, sweet. James Worthy's available. Sweet. We'll get him as well. Even though those two teams, more times than not, had the best records in basketball. More times than not, those two teams were trading NBA championships in the 80s outside of that one by Philadelphia. And you also have to think about, too, when you looked at the rest of the league back in the 90s, how many super teams were actually built? You could argue the 96-97 Rockets when Barkley went to Houston to join Clyde and Akeem. That might be your one exception, but it wasn't like there was a bunch of super teams that had two, much less one all-star. So that's something to kind of think about when people want to talk about, oh, LeBron just creates super teams. He just tries to make it easier for himself. Have you guys also thought that maybe people actually want to play with LeBron and those people actually want the best chance to win an NBA championship with all of the talent in today's game? All of the talent in today's game. Some people, and I'm going to say this for some of these people that are listening that may struggle in their current situation in life, whether you are 
<clears throat> at a job you don't like. If you're at a job you don't like, are you just going to sit there and be like, well, I'm going to be a billionaire here. I hate the job. I make minimum wage. I'm just going to sit here. Or are you going to try to find yourself to be put in a better position to provide for your family, to provide for your kids, to provide for your significant other, to provide for these things that you want? Are you going to sit with option A that I mentioned? Or are you going to go to option B to where things are the greener, the grass is greener, the opportunities are better, and you're put in a position that you want to be put in? Think about that. Whether or not that deters you and you want to just scream at me, type in the comment section that, doesn't matter, Jordan's a goat, blah, 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 six finals, hasn't lost, I get that, and everyone's got a debate, everyone's got an opinion. I'm just saying that it's an opinion, and I'm also kind of pointing out certain facts that bleeds into an opinion. That's all I'm going to say. Back to this whole thing about the buyout. I'm really sorry, I had to go on that tangent. I've been going on tangents. Let me just speak my mind. But, you have to think about this for a second. You look at the buyout again with Aldridge and Drummond. Drummond goes to L.A., he still hasn't been able to play with a full roster with LeBron and AD. Aldridge goes to Brooklyn. Obviously, you've seen kind of a bit of a revitalized Blake Griffin. But yet, Kevin Durant's not there, as I mentioned before. So it does make it interesting when you look at both the Lakers and the Nets. Obviously, the Lakers are in more of a dire need situation. Because, especially out west, they've dropped from a top two seed all the way down to a five and could potentially fall further down the playoff line. There may be just a crazy part of me, and it's probably not going to happen, but there could be just this alternate world where the Lakers find themselves as an eight seed and have to be part of that play-in tournament. There is that chance. There is that chance. Mathematically speaking, yes, there is still a chance. But I, I want to get your guys' opinion, so please hit that comment section. I want to hear your guys' opinion. Who... Won the buyout. Was it the Nets or was it the Lakers? Obviously, Aldridge and Griffin heading towards the latter half, you know, past their like their prime part. Whereas Drummond, still a younger talent, 27, 28 years old, joins the defending NBA champions. Who wins that? So again, comment section down below. Please feel free to share your opinion there. But enough about that. So again, my final thoughts as we close out this episode of the NBB podcast. I'm excited. Again, ladies and gentlemen, we have 20-some-odd games left of the regular season. There's still a whole lot to play for. There's still a lot of things that could be happening between now and at the end of April as we bleed into May as far as teams potentially moving in the playoff race potentially falling out and find themselves in that 7-10 area where they're ending up in the play-in. There's a lot to be played for, and I'm super excited. And again, we just got done with March Madness. We just got done with some amazing basketball, and now we get ready to gear up for the postseason. And again, yes, as I mentioned, this is a basketball podcast, so I can't talk about baseball. I mean, I would, but you're not going to get quality you know, commentary and opinions about baseball. And the same thing with Masters. Super exciting thing. So there's a lot of things to be excited about in sports. But again, when we talk about the NBA, we talk about basketball, the playoffs are coming. It's right around the corner. 
It's coming, people. I'm excited about it. I hope you guys are too. So if you guys have any questions that you want to leave for me, find that comment section. Or better yet, if you know me and you are friends with me on social media, I'm going to have these posted. You can leave a question there. If you want something answered, please feel free to use that keyboard. Type away. Have questions that you want to ask me. We're getting ready for this thing. I'm super excited about it. So stay tuned. Episode 6 will be coming out soon, probably in another week or two. But again, we talked about NCAA. We talked about the Men's and Women's National Championship. We talked about the buyout, what the significance are. It's an exciting time, people. So again, I'm your host, Joey Jericho. This has been episode number 5 of the Nothing But Backboard podcast. Please, again, if you are not subscribed on YouTube, please, please, please. You know what to do. Find that bell. Click it right there. There's a subscribe button. It's a gray or a red button. You click that thing right there so you subscribe so you get the latest on when these episodes are posting. I may even have some live videos where I am watching a game and you guys are able to join in with me. And we can have a nice little fun chat. Because, again, 2021, we still are living in the pandemic. It's nice to be around people. It's nice to chat with actual humans while doing something in the present. So, again... Those might be coming out soon. But again, also like that button. And again, on audio, you can download any of the previous four episodes, including this fifth episode here. So again, you guys are awesome. You guys rock. If you want to listen to some awesome music by Raza, it's down there in the description. If you want your artwork, if you have a project that you want done, whether it's for a wedding, something random, another project like a podcast like this, illustrated by Molly, Instagram, right there find her there this has been the nbb podcast i will see you guys very very soon peace